Welcome to the Celebration Church Tri-Cities Podcast. We are so grateful that you have chosen to spend part of your day with us. We are praying that God speaks to you through this message from our pastor, Robert Russell. For more information about our church, visit cctri.org. Enjoy the message. Well, I do want to pray that the Holy Spirit would speak this morning to each one of us individually. That wherever you are, whatever your need, whatever the questions of your life, that he would speak to your specific heart. If you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that I took a time out from the series we were doing to essentially talk about things going on in the world. However, those teachings were not at all political. In fact, I heard this past week that Dolly Parton said she'd rather pass a kidney stone than talk about politics. And so I think I agree with Dolly on that statement. What I was talking about had to do with morality not political things, although it, of course, was affecting what's going on between governments and things of that nature. And I had talked a couple weeks ago about the idea of, is it ever appropriate to take another life when the book of Exodus in the commandments says, you shall not murder? And we talked about the idea of just war, that there is a time in a fallen world Ecclesiastes said a time for peace and a time for war. There is a time to stand against that which is unjust, which is indiscriminate, which is not respecting the lives of individuals, and that a just war is one that takes place when you've exhausted all other means to avoid it, but you're, you're standing against evil, standing for righteousness and truth. And I made the argument that I think you cannot declare anything just about what Russia is doing or the leadership of Russia, not the whole nation. Obviously, there are a lot of people there who would rather it not be taking place. And yet it is just for the Ukrainians to defend their freedom, their property, their own individual rights. And as this has progressed, obviously the magnitude of the atrocities has gotten worse. And then in last week, we were talking about the subject of freedom. And in Galatians, it says that Christ has set us free, that it is for this very purpose that he has come. Primarily, he has set us free from the bondage of sin. That is, every person has affirmed what Adam and Eve did, that is, the original sin passed down through the generations. All of us have affirmed it. All of us have done similar things. And yet Christ has set us free from the bondage to sin. And in the passage of Galatians, Paul was saying, don't let somebody put a yoke of slavery back on you. In other words, there are a lot of requirements of the Old Testament law that, that people were trying to impose upon New Testament believers, but Jesus had already fulfilled those requirements. And so we are not to walk in some religious bondage or something of that nature. We're to enjoy our freedom. But what does that mean? And I said that I believe most people in our culture do not understand what freedom really is. In fact, I think they would fail a legitimate test in defining freedom. Because much of our culture thinks that freedom is the complete opportunity to indulge in anything I want. Essentially to indulge my sinful nature in every fleshly desire. But Paul in this statement in Galatians where he said that Christ came to set us free. 
He similarly says, do not use your freedom to indulge your sin nature. Rather, love your neighbor. And the principle that I talked about last week is this, and I absolutely believe it's true. And that is, if you use your freedom to stand for truth, to defend righteousness, to seek to love other people, to love your neighbor, your personal freedom will expand. But if you use your freedom to indulge your sin nature, your freedom will decline. In fact, you indulge your sin nature far enough, it will completely take away your freedom. It will destroy your life. I mean, if some people indulge their sin nature in illegal activities that they end up being incarcerated, maybe for life, their freedom is taken in that regard. But some people indulge their sin nature so much that it costs them their life. And you see, there is a truth there that if you use your freedom to bless others, to serve others, to love your neighbor, there's something good. Now, in that context, I, talk about, I talked about last week, how does that apply to government? That government is an institution ordained by God to restrain evil. The biblical purpose of government is to restrain evil, to promote the public good, so to speak, by making sure that the wrongdoer does not overrule or override what's going on in society. And the scripture in Romans that Paul wrote talks about this, that they're God's servants really to do you good, but they do not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, that they have a responsibility to restrain evil. This is why, like police officers, are fulfilling a godly role in society. Likewise, so does the military. That essentially, the military is, they are police officers on a grand scale. But I raise the question of when does a government forfeit or abdicate its legitimate biblical right to rule? And that is when it no longer serves as an agent to restrain evil, but becomes an agent of promoting evil. And see, that's what I was talking about with the context of Russia, that it has failed to stand in a position of restraining evil and is now an agent of evil. And therefore, I believe that the church has a responsibility to stand in prayer against the darkness, that peace would be restored, that the bloodshed would be stopped, that freedom itself would again reign among people. Now, I know there are a lot of different perspectives on these things, but it boils down to what is morally right and what is morally justified. And all the bloodshed that is taking place, you cannot argue that it's justified in what is going on. And therefore, we have a responsibility to stand with especially the Christians in Ukraine, and there are many of them, godly people, and by the way, since I bring that up, I mentioned during this that there are five orphanages that Serving Orphans supports in Ukraine. Four of those orphanages have now evacuated all of their children out of the country. They've gotten into Poland and other places where they've found sanctuary. One of them is still there with the children in Western Ukraine and they are at least, they were in what they considered a safe zone, but that may be changing, so they're still evaluating what to do. But at least four of those, and one of those orphanages was in Mariupol, the city that's been surrounded. So they fortunately got the kids out uh, early and were able to get them to a safe place. 
Well, what I want to do this week is to return to the teaching that I was doing, the series, Begin Again. So we will begin again, again today. And uh, if you recall, when we were talking about that series, we began by saying that this word, this idea of begin again, was something that one of the people here who works at the church felt like the Lord spoke, and then when the rest of us heard it, we affirmed it that we are in a season of beginning again. And that is, we are in such a season as a church, celebration church, but I believe the, the global church is in a time of beginning again. And then for many of us individually, it is a similar time. And I mentioned when we started this series that as you go through life, there are different seasons of life. And I know that as a young person, I assumed those seasons would last a lot longer than they do. That those of us who've lived a few years know that the years pass far more quickly than you can fathom when you are very young. And in each season, each new season, often there is a time of beginning again. Maybe it's a time when you just graduated from high school and a whole new fresh start and you're beginning there. Or maybe you just got married and there's an excitement there about what's going to happen in your journey together. But maybe you're at the other end of the spectrum. Maybe you're an empty nester. Maybe your spouse died as several people in this church in the last couple of years have lost their spouse. Maybe you're just at a different season. And I talked about the idea that I believe God is always doing something new and fresh in us each day, that in each season we are to begin again. And this, many of you have heard me say this lie that I believe, started believing a few years ago about the past is better than the future, is something that is a temptation for us often. You can easily look at good seasons of your life and say, oh, I wish I could stay there. But if you're recognizing that God is always at work, even though there have been good seasons in the past, you might be in a difficult valley now. He's always taking you to a place to show you his goodness. There will be new and good seasons yet again. And so maybe you need to begin again in your outlook, in your perspective, in your season. Maybe you need to begin again in relationships. We talked about that in this series that some of us need to begin again in our relationship with Christ. That is, maybe we haven't gone far astray. Maybe we've just become lukewarm and we need to refocus our journey with him. Or if you were here a few weeks ago, we had a panel of people talking about beginning again in relationships and about the experiences that they had had where there'd been some difficult journeys like Louis was talking about things in his own family and then his mom died very recently. And then what does it mean to begin again, allow God to heal from the wounds of the past, let him bring new people into your life to bless you, to show you what it means to see the love of God. But there are a lot of different ways in which we might need to begin again. And as you can see, the title for this is Begin Again Within. Now, about three weeks ago, Jonathan Mio spoke and he talked about having to essentially remodel, tearing down the things in your house, in your life that are not of God and having them rebuilt by God to be something strong and firm in him. And what I wanna talk about is very much along that line. 
And I'm talking about different levels of beginning again in Christ. And when I say begin again within, it's within my own being, in my own life, in my own personal journey. I'm going to talk next week probably more about beginning again as it relates to others. But this is about you individually. And there are different places that any person in this room could be. Some people may need to begin again for the first time in knowing Christ. Some people need a new beginning in an area of their life. Some people have a stronghold that has been besetting them for a long time. They need a fresh beginning there. And then there's some of us who need to begin again with a whole new perspective of what God wants to do within us in order to affect others in a positive way. So to start this teaching, we'll go to 2 Corinthians. It says there that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old has gone, the new has come. Now that's an exciting passage, and yet in some ways it's a little bit confusing. Because when I became a Christian, yes, I know that some things radically changed pretty quickly. But at that point, I had already lost much of my locks, and they didn't suddenly return when I became a Christian. I didn't get a new body. There are a lot of things that didn't change. And so what does it mean to be a new creation in Christ? Well, from a spiritual standpoint, it means that before you knew him, you were spiritually dead. That because of sin, you're separated from God, your spirit is void, it's empty, there's nothing there. But that when you accept him, your sins are forgiven. God looks at you through the shed blood of Christ, so he always sees you as pure, holy, and righteous once you come to know him. That before you know him, you are an object of his wrath by definition because of your sin nature. But once Christ has come in you, you're a new creation. You're forgiven. And then he imparts his Holy Spirit to you to come and dwell within you so that your spirit is no longer dead, but you are alive in Christ. Now that part, when I became a Christian, I understood pretty clearly because I knew something had changed. I didn't have the terminology. I didn't have somebody explain it to me, but I knew something had changed. You see, when I, was a, when I became a Christian, I was by myself. It was a work of the Holy Spirit convicting me, drawing me unto him. And the, that evening, I knew something had changed. I got up the next day and went to the nearest church. I'd had an encounter with Christ. And the Holy Spirit came to dwell within me. It was a radical change right from the beginning. I knew I was a new creation, even though I didn't have that terminology. I knew something had happened. And what it was, was the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. And he dwells within each person here who has accepted him. But then you would think that suddenly you would be perfected. If the Spirit of God comes to dwell within you, the one who created all things, you would think that you would just suddenly be perfected. That you would never have a temptation again. You'd never do anything wrong. You'd never even desire to do anything wrong. That you would just walk on water from then on. Now, I know a couple of you fishermen are close to that. That was a joke. Just a joke. But really, if you think about it, if God's spirit dwells within you, the Holy Spirit, and he's God, why is it that you are not just perfect from that point forward? 
It is because of his perfect love that he created you independent and distinct from him. You have a real mind, a real will, real choices, and his spirit comes to dwell within you, but he does not override who you are. He wants to transform you to be like Christ. And since he does not override you, even though you are a complete new creation, you are still in the process of being recreated. And I believe this, where the scripture says that he is a new creation in Christ, I believe that is past, present, and future tense. That it's past tense in the sense that God has already made you a new creation. It's present tense, and that is what he is doing today in you. And it's future tense in that he is always making you more like Christ so that as you journey through this life, things are going to change. That you're a new creation now, and you're going to be a newer creation as you go along. See, if you think about it like this, ultimately, the perfection of you as a new creation will happen when? When you die. Because ultimately, when you pass from this earth, your spirit, your soul will exit this body. You're going to get a new body, a spiritual body that will be what? Perfect. And everything will have been fulfilled and completed. No longer will sin have any residue or impact upon your life. That the fullness or the perfection of you as a new creation occurs when you leave this world. But for now, we are in the process of working out what has already taken place from God's perspective, but is taking place day by day. And so Paul says this. He says that if any person confesses with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That everyone, there is no distinction between, as he called it, Jew and Gentile, which meant between the Jews and all other people, that everyone can be saved. Now, there are those who teach that they're, they're only the elect and they're going to be chosen and some people are predestined for hell and some people predestined for heaven. I do not agree with that. I believe that the Spirit of God goes out to the entire world, calling every person unto himself, that you are effectively elect as you accept him but that the call goes to every person because he desires that none would perish yet the reality of this life's journey is that many will say no that many will rebel against what is the truth that they will reject the truth in fact i was listening this week to a teacher talking about evidence for christ and that, you know, the, really, there is overwhelming evidence that there is a God. First, there's what's called the general revelation of creation around us, all the beauty. Just one snowfall gives you evidence that there's a God because of the beauty and perfection of it. And just everything in this world, from the smallest of creatures to the fact that you and I can have relationships, it's just amazing. There's so much evidence. There's historical evidence for the reality of Christ. And then there's prophetic evidence. The fact that, for example, that Israel exists as a nation is fulfillment of prophecies going all the way back to Ezekiel. And yet you place all those things before people and many reject it. 
See, it's not because the world lacks evidence. It's because the heart of man lacks humility. That in our pride, we reject God. And so in this world, you truly can accept or reject him. Now, I think it behooves every person to be certain. Because, see, there are some people who've had some experience with church who've never come to know him. They say, oh, well, you know, I, I attended when I was a kid or I was baptized when I was a kid. Was that a choice that you made or somebody made for you? Then there are those who've been exposed to things of Christianity and they went along because that's what their spouse wanted and they just tried to keep the peace by always doing what their spouse wanted, but they never made a personal decision. Or there's a gentleman who attended here who told me that for several years he was in a church. He was a nice guy. Knowing him, I'm sure he was a very nice guy. But he said it wasn't until he was in a Bible study in that church that it really confronted him that he only knew about God. He did not know him. And he had a personal encounter. You see, it's not good enough to know about him. You must know him. And see, that's why it's saying, not just say something, confess with your mouth, but believe in your heart. It takes humility to accept and know Christ. And so if you're here, maybe you've been here a long time. Are you sure? If you're watching online, have you ever made a confession of faith genuinely? Have you humbled yourself? Absolutely answers that prayer. And that's the start of beginning again within. You must know Christ, be filled with the Spirit in order to begin again in him. Now, a second way in which you begin again within is what the scripture talks about as sanctification. Now, that's sort of a big word that simply means to be purified, to to be made righteous, fine work of the spirit, and through belief in the truth. Now, he talks about the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within you. He is perfect, holy, and righteous. He dwells within you only because of the shed blood of Christ. Otherwise, he couldn't be within you. But he is in the business of always sanctifying you. That is, to make you more like Christ, to purify you. Now, I I can't say what that looks like for each individual here. But I know what it has looked like in my life where there have been strongholds of ungodly thinking or behavior that the Holy Spirit has worked on sometimes very quickly early in my life and sometimes it took longer to transform my thinking, my outlook, my behavior such that I am more closely the image of Christ. Does that mean I've already reached perfection? No. And see, sanctification is just like other things. It's past, present, and future. From God's perspective, you have been completely purified. You have been sanctified because of Christ. He is also sanctifying you this day. In fact, every time we come together and you learn something and you worship, it's a work of God in you. It should be causing you to grow more and more into the image and likeness of Christ. And likewise, in the future, you're going to be more like Christ. You're going to be more sanctified. 
And some people say, well, that's impossible if you've already been sanctified. Well, yes, there is a bit of a conundrum there. You are completely sanctified. You're being sanctified and you're going to be more sanctified. Because God is making you more like him. And so look, if there's any area in your life in which you do not think like God, maybe about yourself, about other people, maybe about God himself, he wants to change that. He wants you to think with a righteous attitude. Now here's an example. I knew a gentleman who um, early in life, he was involved in homosexual relationships. And that's just what he did. Then he had an encounter with Christ when he was, I'm gonna say around 21 years old. A radical encounter with Christ. And he stepped away from that lifestyle he really developed a, a love for God, but he sometimes struggled with ungodly thoughts. And one day, he, he told me this story. He, he was telling several people, not just me. He said one day he had a lustful outlook regarding another man. And the Holy Spirit convicted him and said, how dare you make a person created in my image an object of your lust? So you think about that. Because it doesn't just happen in those types of relationships, it happens in all relationships. This is why Jesus said, if you have lusted after a woman, talking to you and the men, then it's the same as if you have committed the sin. See, because what the Spirit was saying to that gentleman was that you're making another person an object of your sinful desire, and that person is created in the image of God. What a wretched thing that is. It's no different than saying, I want to steal your property, so I'm going to kill you. I'm going to get rid of you because the thing that I'm lusting after, your property, is of more value than you. And see, those are the kinds of things that the Holy Spirit comes after to sanctify your thinking. So that when an ungodly thought comes your way, you quickly are free from it and rid yourself of it rather than harboring it and lusting in it and walking in something which is ungodly. See, Paul said to, in the same way that, whoops, too fast. Well, maybe I skipped it. There's another part where he says that the work of God is to sanctify you through and through. That may the Spirit of God be continuously upon you, working to make you like him. And see, our job is simply to cooperate. It's the Spirit who changes us. You can't perfect yourself. But as he points out things in your life, it is our job to cooperate with the work of God that we would be more like him. That you would learn to control your tongue and your behavior such that you are more like Christ. Now there is another way in which the Spirit of God works to let us begin again and it's in deliverance. Now that term might in some ways sound a little 
too ghostly, but it's just the reality of what the scripture talks about. In Luke, it says this, that Jesus was going about, that he was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, that the disciples were with him, as were some women. And notice it says this about them, who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. In other words, who had been delivered and in some cases, the spirits apparently had an impact upon them physically. And Joanna, and there's a list of others there. But it explicitly says that there's something, several things that were demonic that had position in Mary. Now, if you go to a more moderate or liberal theological institution, the spiritual battle that the Apostle Paul wrote about it, that we war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness, that there is a real spiritual battle. The demonic is very real. And part of the reason the church in this country is losing the battle against the demonic is because we dismiss the idea. But I believe every individual faces spiritual warfare. Every one of us. And people can be in this case, like Mary, she was strongly possessed by something demonic. Who knows how it influenced her? It is interesting if you've seen the series, The Chosen, how they portray Mary and what an influence the demonic had upon her and then her freedom. It, of course, they're speculating in doing that, but it's an interesting portrayal of what it might have been like for her life. But what is quite clear is that there were seven different demonic influences in her. Now, people have asked me in the past, is, well, do you think it's just one demon who can manifest in many different ways, or it was actually seven different demons? Well, I think if it had been one demon, it would have said one. That I believe the demonic, that they operate in different forms with different authorities. If you've ever read the screw tape letters that C.S. Lewis wrote, it's really a very insightful, thoughtful way about how the demonic works because often they're much more manipulative and cunning than we might think, and that's what he was writing. I encourage you to read that if you haven't done so. But I believe we face the demonic, and there are different types of demons. Now, if you are a Christian, if you've come to know Christ and the Spirit of God dwells within you, you can't be possessed by the demonic. But you can certainly be oppressed, or as some people call it, demonized. Some people try to separate those two. I don't see a big distinction. What I mean by demonized is this, that you have a strong area of thinking that is ungodly. Let, let's say that you, um, you genuinely know Christ, but you are an extremely greedy person. And in every area of your life, you're always doing things that reveal your greediness. It's how you think. Well, there could be something demonic behind that. Or maybe you have an addiction that you keep going to. Certainly, there could be something demonic behind that. Or a fear. Or a lot of different things. In fact, I've made a little list here of uh, types of demonic influences. One is what I would call an idolatrous spirit. In other words, the demonic always wants you to worship something other than Christ. 
and behind a lot of the things in this world that draws people to worship is something demonic. I think of our friends from India, the Masseys, who have a ministry to the children of temple prostitutes. And in their city, there's a Hindu temple there where literally there is temple prostitution. And their ministry has been to reach out to the kids of these prostitutes, help them get out of that lifestyle. And certainly there's something demonic behind that form of worship and the things taking place with it. It's a similar form of demonic idolatry to what took place in the Greek temples and things of that nature. And yet, in our culture, we worship a lot of things. And spirits of evil can easily get us to make an idol of something. And if you worship something other than Christ, you may well be worshiping the demonic. There are demonic spirits that are blasphemous. They're always speaking against the true name of Christ, always demeaning. In fact, you go into a large public setting like a, like a football game or something like that and listen to the conversation of people around you. It doesn't take too long to hear somebody who has a blasphemous spirit upon them. It really doesn't. And the spirits of evil always want to speak negatively against Christ. There are rebellious spirits. Now, in some ways, every human being has a, a bit of rebellion. That's what is the problem of sin. But there's some people who have deep strongholds of rebellion. They rebel against everything. They rebel against family, against every authority. They get into all kinds of trouble because of a rebellious spirit. Very often there's something demonic behind it. In fact, the scripture says that rebellion is like what? Witchcraft. There's very often something demonic that can be a stronghold in a spirit of rebellion. There's also demonic spirits of death. Now, I don't believe that a demonic spirit can drive or can take your life but they can drive you to take your own life or they can drive you to want to take the lives of others. In other words, let's say a person who is tormented with suicidal thoughts, there's likely a demonic spirit behind it. Or you see the murder-suicide things, inevitably there's something demonic behind it. I would say it's a spirit of death. Sometimes there's a spirit of death that has a stronghold in a person that is driving them to destroy their own lives whether through addiction or some other behavior that is extremely damaging to them physically, that it can control, manipulate. And it's one of the interesting things over the years when I've talked to people who are drug addicts. And if, I've, if I didn't know them very well and I've never talked to them about the demonic, and, and if I bring up the subject of the demonic sort of along the lines, now I don't know what you think about this, but you know what? Every person I've ever talked to who's an addict said, oh, I absolutely know it's true, I've encountered it because it's like an open door to the demonic that can grip a person. Then there are plenty of demonic spirits that deal with sexual sin, every type of sexual perversion, as well as adultery, fornication, homosexuality, all the crazy gender dysphoria. You can guarantee there's something demonic behind much, if not all, of that. 
because God created sex in order that we would procreate and recreate his image. The demonic hates the image of God and wants to destroy it even before it starts. That's why I would say there's something like a spirit of death that's in the abortion industry and things of that nature, very much driven by the demonic. In fact, I talked about the three demonic spirits that have authority in this nation. I'm sure the Lord has revealed that to not only me, but to others. They are Baal, Molech, and Ashtoreth. And Molech worship was very much the sacrifice of children. Baal is very much about greed and power and authority. Ashtoreth is very much about sexual sin. That those are the primary powerful demonic spirits that have authority in this nation. There are also spirits that have to do with coveting. In other words, always wanting that which somebody else has, trying to take from them. That's where greed fits in that I mentioned earlier. Then in addition, there are lying spirits Satan himself is a liar. The demonic always works by lies, but sometimes a lying spirit gets authority in a person to where they lie all of the time. You know, people lie to cover up their sin. They lie to get things that they want or to get out of things. But some people lie repetitively when it's unnecessary to lie. It's just what they do because there's a stronghold of lying in their lives. And then there's some people who are always taking from others, stealing from others. There can be something demonic behind that. So if you say, that, if the scripture says that Mary Magdalene was delivered from seven demonic spirits, well, perhaps some of these were on the list. We don't know exactly. And this is certainly not exhaustive. But if you look at that list, it's the opposite of something. Another list. What is it? It's essentially the opposite of the Ten Commandments. Because the first few commandments have to do with honoring God, honoring his name, and the demonic spirits do not want that to take place. That's what idolatry and blasphemy and rebellion are about. Then there's honor your father and mother, which means honor this authority structure that God has put in place. There's a spirit of rebellion. Do not murder the spirit of death. Do not commit adultery, sexual perversion. Do not lie, that is false witness, in, it says in the, in the commandments. Don't covet, don't take from your neighbor. See, the demonic is always countering or counterfeiting that which is good. And so part of beginning again may be for an individual to realize there is a stronghold in my life. I've seen it many times, Christians who genuinely know the Lord, who have some type of demonic influence in their lives. Now you say, well, what does that look like? Well, are you tormented by a certain pattern of thinking? That's one possibility. Like the person I mentioned who's tormented with suicidal thoughts, there's something demonic there. Are you repetitively, over and over, going back into the same type of sin? Maybe it's sexual sin of some type. Maybe it's an addiction to pornography. You can be certain the demonic is working through pornography these days, and it's a very powerful way that it, it grips and gets people under control. Maybe you're a Christian and you have a problem with lying. I've known Christians who had a rebellious spirit. 
And see, if that's the case, they have an influence in you. And the question is, how did it get there and how can it be broken? Well, if the demonic has influence in you, it might be generational. Sometimes those are the strongest strongholds, something that has come down through the generation. It might be by the consequence of your own sinful actions. In other words, if you've been sexually promiscuous, you've invited demonic spirits to have authority on you in that area. It might be because of somebody else's sin against you if you were extremely traumatized, like if you were sexually abused as a child, the demonic doesn't care. They'll take advantage of that situation and get a stronghold in your life. But there are avenues by which the demonic doors can be open. The way that they are closed is first you acknowledge it, you recognize it, you confess it, that is talk to somebody else about it, you forgive any person who may have been the avenue through which it came. In other words, if it was your father, then the key to being free from something demonic that came through him is to forgive him. This is why it troubles me that there's so many Christians who are unforgiving of a variety of people. What you're doing in unforgiveness is inviting the demonic to have authority in your life in that arena. Whether you realize it or not. You're playing right into the hands of Satan. Because forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness are the keys to breaking demonic strongholds. Repentance has to do with me taking responsibility for my will, turning away from and not going back to. God's not gonna override your will. You have to make choices. But forgiveness opens the door for the spirit of God to pour out his power upon you to give you the strength to say no. As long as you are unforgiving, what builds in you? Bitterness which hardens your heart and makes it more difficult to be free from any demonic spirit. In fact, right at the core of it, I would argue forgiveness is key to breaking strongholds. The scripture I alluded to earlier is where Paul said this, that we fight, that the, the battle that we're in is not a physical battle that we are fighting against in a spiritual battle, and he says the weapons we fight with are not weapons of this world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demonic strongholds. Do you realize forgiveness is one of those weapons? In fact, see, the core of the gospel of Christ is forgiveness. His forgiveness of all of humanity. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that anyone who would call upon his name would be saved. And see, forgiveness breaks the power of the demonic over your life. It's God's forgiveness of you. So in turn, to break the demonic strongholds in your life, you must be a forgiving person. So if you want to begin again within your own life, this is sometimes one of the biggest areas. I didn't list an exhaustive list of strongholds. One of the biggest strongholds that often it has a demonic root to it is fear. Often because of something that has occurred in prior generations or in your own life where fear gets a deep grip and there's something demonic that always manipulates you in that area. But God wants you to be free and free indeed. Now lastly, I want to talk about one other area where there's a fresh beginning again. And this one is not quite so heavy as the prior one. 
But the scripture says something very interesting in 1 John. It says, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. Now, if someone were to say, or to just present this scripture to you, who do you think it's talking about? I think in much of Christendom, we tend to do this. We tend to say, oh, there's an anointing upon that worship leader. There's an anointing upon that teacher, and they're the anointed ones. Or don't, don't touch the Lord's anointed. Some people like to use that wrongly. Well, in the Old Testament, who was anointed? The priests were. And it would be the people from the tribe of Levi who had the role of being priests, the intermediaries for the Jewish people with God. When they were anointed, how did they anoint them? Well, there was a ceremony and they didn't just sprinkle them a little bit. They just flooded oil over them. I mean, it's quite a, it, it had to be an interesting thing. They were just drenched in oil and they were anointed. It was signifying to everybody that this person is a priest serving God. They have a very special role and they are anointed of God. In the New Testament, who are the priests? You are. Every one of us. If you know Christ, you are a part of the royal priesthood. There is no hierarchy. I don't know how many times I've said that, but I'll say it a hundred times more. There is no hierarchy. That you are a royal priest and who is anointed? You are. It's not just a select few or the ordained or somebody in a certain position. Every person who knows Christ is a priest. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What was the job of the priest in the Old Testament? Go into the temple, make sacrifices on behalf of the people. The sacrifice has been made for you such that you are the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. You are a priest. You no longer need an intermediary, somebody to go between you and God. You have direct access to God. And you are anointed. Now, it might be that in some situations, some worship leader is doing something and the Spirit of God is strongly upon them and you call that an anointing. That's fine, but you are anointed. It's not the anointed ones and the non-anointed ones. It's everybody who knows Christ, that the Spirit of God anoints you. Likewise, it says in 2 Corinthians, it said, it's God who made both of us and you stand firm in Christ. Of course, this is Paul writing. He said, he anointed us, set his seal of ownership upon us, put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. That we are anointed by the Holy Spirit. You are anointed for ministry. Now, you might be in a lot of situations in your life where you feel unqualified to do what needs to be done in that situation as a representative of Christ. Well, have you ever thought about perhaps that's exactly what God wants? That if you think you're qualified and you can handle it, you don't need him. But in your humility, in your weakness, he is strong and you are anointed for that moment. Now, what does an anointing look like? Well, perhaps it's just God giving you the strength and character to sit by the bed of somebody who's dying, hold their hand, and show them the love of Christ. You might be as anointed in that moment 
or more so than, than anything that any South African worship leader has ever done. Just kidding. See, the anointing of God is for every form of ministry, every situation, every type. I've had a unique little, what I would call an anointing over the last few months. I don't know why it's been happening, but it's happened. I was driving from here back to my home, which is only a few miles away over near Warriors Pass State Park. And I come up the road over there near Shekinah and I see smoke coming up off the side of the road. And I think there's a fire on the side of the road. And uh, so I get up there a little closer and I look, it's not a fire or, or not what I thought it was. It was a truck who had driven over the embankment and smoke was just pouring up out of the truck. And the, you had to see it was a steep drop into a cow field. He knocked the fence down and the, some of the wheels were off the ground. It wasn't going anywhere. And I just happened to be the first person to pull on the scene. I go up and there's a young guy in the front. So I'm talking to him, checking to see if he's okay. He seemed to be okay, although I couldn't quite figure it out. Well, anyway, I stayed there with him a long time. Another guy stopped. We, in fact, I knew the other guy who stopped. We, he got out of the truck. He was okay physically. His truck was pretty messed up. And we stayed with him until the police officer came, who was one of the most laid back police officers I've ever encountered. The three of us are standing there and he walks up and says, one of you boys having a bad day? <laughs> Two of us went, he is. And, but I just was there, prayed a little bit for the guy, not outwardly with him, but was praying for him. And he told me, he said, he's a young guy. He's, I think he's like 19 or something. He said, I just looked down at my phone for a minute. My grandma called. He looked down at his phone because grandma called him and drove through the fence off the road. Poor guy was in tears. He's on the phone with grandma while we were there at one point. He's like, it's like, grandma, I believe you better leave him alone at this point. Well, would you believe, not too many weeks later, I'm driving along Fall Creek Road, and I see this car smoke again up on its side on Fall Creek Road on the bank. And I'm like, oh boy, here we go. So I pull off the road. Nobody else is there yet. He's driven up on the bank. So steep is the bank that now his car, it's not going anywhere. It's just resting on the side. It's not rolled over, but it's there. And he can't get out on the driver's side because he's pinned in. So I have to go up on the bank, open the car for him, help him crawl out, get him out, and try to help him so forth. And I'm like, this is a little too coincidental. Why do I keep coming upon these accidents? Now, I didn't ask this guy, and he didn't tell me, but if you had seen the situation, you'd go, that had to be a cell phone. How do you drive up a bank like that on this road? I mean, there was no other explanation for it. And... You know, in retrospect, I, I thought, well, the Lord put me there for some reason with those people in that moment. And was I anointed of the Lord for that job? Yes. Same as you are anointed of the Lord for all the different jobs that the Lord gives you each and every day. There is an, an anointing of the Spirit for what you need, an equipping of the Spirit for what you need in those moments that it gives you wisdom and guidance day by day. Now, where are you in your Christian journey? Or are you in your Christian journey? The first step of beginning again is 
knowing him, inviting him into your life. Beginning again often is being sanctified. Where do I need to walk away from things to be like him? Do you need deliverance and freedom from something? Or are you at a place where you need to recognize you are a priest called to minister every day and anointed by God? In fact, what I'm probably going to talk about next week is beginning again in ministry. And you know, people will talk about being called to ministry, and I, there's nothing wrong with that terminology, but look, every person in this room is called to ministry. And so, in thinking through these things, are there some places where you need to begin again within your own being? Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us in any area where we need first to know you or to be set free from anything that's not of you, that you would bring healing and wholeness, freedom and deliverance to those who have any bondage, and that we would recognize we are anointed by you for the purposes to which you call us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this podcast and that it blessed you in some way. Don't forget to visit our website at cctri.org and make sure that you send us your prayer requests at office at cctri.org. We pray that the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him.